If you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, would you open it up to Revelation chapter 2, or correction, chapter 3. We are in our sixth week in our series, which we've entitled Reading Someone Else's Mail. And over the last six weeks, we've been going through the letters to the seven churches that we find in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. Each of these letters, as we've seen, is a letter from Jesus to these churches by way of their pastors. But as we've been reading through the letters, I hope that you've been picking up that while they are a letter to these churches, they are also a letter to us today. Each of these letters is a letter to you and to me. But we're far enough into the series now that I can't go through each of the previous five sermons to kind of rehash what we've done. So I'm just going to go through last week for just a second to get everybody up to speed to where we're at right now. So last week we were looking at the church at Sardis and we saw a church that had a reputation. They had a name for being alive, but Jesus called them out because they were actually dead. They, they looked good on the outside. They looked like they were nailing it, but in reality, they were spiritually dead. They had abandoned Christ's mission for the church. So Jesus called them to wake up. He said, wake up, strengthen what remains, get back on mission, get back to work. That last week, we, we saw a dead church. Today, as our journey in these letters continues, we're going to travel from Sardis about 30 miles to the east-southeast to the city of Philadelphia. Not Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, by the way. This is Philadelphia in Asia Minor over in modern-day Turkey. And like the church in Sardis, Philadelphia is established on the south rim of a very large and fertile river basin. Uh, but its position was more important because of where it stood on the roads of the area. Basically, it was the juncture of the roads from the west and the northwest out into the east. In fact, Philadelphia was known as the gateway to the east. The city was founded in 140 BC with the intent of being a missionary city for the Hellenist culture. It, it was meant to bring the Greek way of life out to the east to the eastern regions of Asia Minor, but in 17 AD and for a hundred years after that, it suffered severe earthquakes. The one in 17 AD leveled the city. It also leveled several of the surrounding cities. Um, and some historians believe that those aftershocks just continued to plague the city for, for a hundred years of just constant earthquake after earthquake after earthquake. The city was known because of that for its crumbling walls, its buildings, all because of these earthquakes. And in fact, most of the population had moved out of the city into the farmland surrounding the city to escape the falling debris from all of these earthquakes. But still, in this important city on the road to the east, there was a church. It was a small church, most people believe. And today we're going to read their mail. So if you would turn to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to start at verse Seven. This is what the Bible says. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, 
and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To those who dwell on the earth, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we open up your word today and we read this letter to the church in Philadelphia, God, as we examine what you've read, written to this church 2,000 years ago, God, would you speak to us today? Would you help us to see and understand that this letter, as much as it was a letter for Philadelphia, it's, a, it's also a letter for the church here in Alberta, in Alabama in 2020? God, would you encourage us as we look at this word of encouragement to this church in Philadelphia? Encourage us, not because we're, we're down, but because we need to recognize the mission you've laid before us, the call that you've placed on our lives. Help us to live that calling out. We love you, Lord, and it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. As we've been reading through these letters, you may have noticed that up until now, only one of the letters that we've read has not included a word of admonishment, a word of condemnation from Jesus. Every church except Smyrna had a problem that Jesus had to address. So we saw that Ephesus had lost their love that they had at first, and Pergamum was compromising on the essentials of their faith. Thyatira was tolerating sin, and Sardis was just outright dead. Only Smyrna had received a letter without a rebuke. But as we read today's letter, you, you may have noticed that Philadelphia does not have a rebuke either. In fact, the general tone of the letter is, is one of encouragement. In this letter, Jesus seems to be sending an important message to what most scholars believe is a small church. He's telling them, be encouraged. And as we read this letter today, I, I think that we can find that same message written for us today. So I'm, I'm going to do something a little bit different here. I'm, I'm going to tell you the whole point of my sermon right, up, right at the beginning. I'm going to just tell you all, like you'll be able to fill in all the blanks right at the beginning. If you're type A and you just have to have them, pay attention. I'm going to give them to you right now. And then what I want to do is I'm going to just go through the text and I want to show you how I got that. Okay, so here it is. Here it is. If you're ready, if you're writing down, here it is. The message of the letter to the church at Philadelphia is that we have a powerful Savior who sees his faithful church who remains a faithful redeemer and who offers an eternal reward. And when we remember that, we can be encouraged. When life gets hard, when, when persecution comes, when we see the magnitude of the mission before us, we have a powerful Savior. He sees his faithful church. He remains our faithful redeemer and he offers an eternal reward. And when we remember that, we can be encouraged. Now let me show you that. Let's start with verse 1. The Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. 
Now, up until now, in each of these letters, we've seen Jesus beginning the letter by addressing the angel, the the messenger, the pastor of the church in each of these cities. And then Jesus uses part of John's description from Revelation chapter 1, and he restates that description as a way of conveying an important aspect about who he is and why that matters to the church. But today, that pattern changes. Jesus says, write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Here we see Jesus using three descriptions about himself that are meant to remind his church that they have a powerful Savior. You see, the title Holy One within the Jewish culture was a familiar title for God himself. So so we see it in places like Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25, where God asks the question, to whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. We also see it in Habakkuk 3.3. We see it in the New Testament, in Mark 1.24, and in John 6.69. The statement is a clear statement about the deity of Christ. Holy literally means set apart. And Jesus is. Jesus is holy. His character is holy. His words are holy. His actions are holy. His purposes are holy. Nothing, no person, no little g God can can be compared to him. But that title, the holy one, is also tied to the next title, the true one. And here true is used in, in the classical sense of it. It means that he's a genuine one. Warren Wearsby says that that means that he is the original, not a copy the authentic God and not a manufactured one. Where there were hundreds of false gods and goddesses in those days, Wiersbe says, but only Jesus Christ could rightfully claim to be the true God. Jesus is holy and true. He's God. But then he says something that's completely kind of out of left field compared to the rest of the letters. He says he's the one who holds the key of David who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That's a little bit different. We haven't seen that yet in the book of Revelation. This statement is a statement of Jesus's authority. Its background is that it comes from Isaiah chapter 22. There we see an oracle against a man named Shebna. Great name. He was the chief steward of King Hezekiah uh, during the the reign or the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem in 701 BC. But but Shebna had used his position for personal gain. He had been taking care of himself and neglecting the kingdom, rather than stewarding the kingdom uh, of of God that he had been placed in, in front of. He was just loading his pockets, if you will. So so the Lord proclaims that Shebna will be replaced by a faithful steward of the king's own court, a man by the name of Eliakim. So in Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 22, we read that in that day I will call on my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. The picture of Isaiah's prophecy uh, is that Eliakim will be given the authority of the kingdom. He's going to be granted access to the house of David. So no one gets to the king except through Eliakim. 
And this metaphor, it makes sense to us today, right? Because we all have houses with locks on our doors, right? But sometimes we go on the road, we, we go on a trip, whether it's for work or for vacation or what have you. And so maybe we need somebody to come over and, and unlock the door and go into the house and water the plants or, or feed the pet or what have you, all of those things that need to be done. And, and when we give that individual the key to our house, we're giving them the authority to enter our house. But we're also giving them the authority, whether we like it or not, to allow others into our house. They've got the key. They can go into the house. If I give my neighbor a key to my house while I'm on vacation, he can allow his kids to come into the house with him if he wants. He has that authority. And it's the same thing here in our text. The picture that's painted uh, with this metaphor is, is one of authority to allow access to, to the, the space. So Eliakim was given the authority of the kingdom of Judah. He, he was allowed to give access to the king. And, and as we see that authority in the hands of Jesus, what we're seeing is that Jesus has the authority to allow people into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is presented as the Davidic Messiah with the absolute power to control ent- entrance into heaven. So, so much so that he decides if the door is open or, or shut, and whatever he decides, that's what it is. It's either open or it's shut, and if he says it's one way or the other, that's where it's going to stand. Jesus is holy and true, and he holds the keys of heaven in his hand. We have a powerful Savior. We have a powerful Savior, and that should encourage us as Christians today. Jesus isn't weak, he's powerful. But as we move on into the next verse, into verse 8, I want you to see that our powerful Savior sees his faithful church. Take a look with me. Jesus says, I I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus says, I know your works. And, and the Greek of that word know is euthai. It means to know or to see. And it's almost as if there's a bit of a word play going on here in the Greek as we look at this text because um, that, that next word that we see there in the next sentence is behold. And, and behold, behold in, in the Greek is, is uthi. And it, it literally means to behold, to look, to see. Which is why as you, as you look at those together, it, I, I love how Eugene Peterson kind of paraphrased this as, as he was giving it. When you look at those together, he says, um, Peterson says that the gist of what Jesus is saying here is that I see what you've done, now see what I'm going to do. I see what you've done, now see what I've done. Jesus, our powerful Savior, is telling his church that he sees them and he's going to do something powerful through them. He says, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. And we're going to come back to that really quick. Um, but the nature of that sentence there, that's kind of a parenthetical statement. Uh, it's placed in the middle of a larger sentence. And I, I, want to, I want you to fully understand what Jesus is saying here. So, so let's skip the parenthetical for just a minute and we'll come back to that, okay? So Jesus says in verse 8, if we were to kind of just take that parenthetical statement and set it aside for a minute, he says, I know your works. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, now in the Greek, the, the second I know, 
that's right there is, is not actually in the text. That's been added by translators to help you understand the thought more clearly. It, it's implied in the Greek, but it's kind of fleshed out for us in the English. Jesus is telling his church that he sees them, that he sees that they have little power. Now, now most scholars agree that this probably means that the church in Philadelphia was a small church. Numerically, they were small. They had little power, little influence, but it was also weak in comparison with the synagogue of Jews there in the city, and even more so in comparison with the authority and the power of the Roman state and the official cult worship that connect that was connected to the state this church was a small church that that was their weakness but that's not the point the point is that in spite of their apparent weakness they have kept jesus's word they have not denied jesus's name so when jesus says that you have kept my word what he means is that they they have been obedient to all that jesus has commanded them that this church has been faithful to jesus and as he called them to live out their life for him they had resisted the temptation toward compromise with the people and the religions that had surrounded them and and when he say, when he says that they have not denied my name we we can see that 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 jesus seems to be saying that there was a cost to following Christ. Being his followers meant that they bore his name and and the implication both implicitly and as we'll see as we move through the text explicitly is that they suffered persecution because they were Christians. Yet they hadn't denied their faith and you see uh, the, the picture that Jesus paints of the church in Philadelphia is that they're a faithful church. And now that we can see that, we can turn back to the parenthetical statement. Okay, so Jesus says to his faithful church, Behold, look, see what I've done. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. What's the open door? Now, there are a few scholars out there who contend that the open door is a reference to entrance into heaven. Um, Jesus is holding the key of David, and, and he's telling them, Heaven awaits. Be encouraged. Now, that's possible, but I, I'm not sure that that's what this is getting at here. And, and the majority of, of the people that are significantly smarter than me contend that what we're seeing here is a reference to what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament. Because in the rest of the New Testament, that phrase is used metaphorically of the opportunity for missions work. So in Luke, um, we see Luke report in Acts chapter 14, verse 27, that Paul and Barnabas declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And Paul tells the Corinthians that he planned to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. So so what I think we're seeing here is that Jesus is telling this faithful church that though they are apparently small, he's going to give them, he's going to open a mission field for them an opportunity for evangelism is coming to the church in Philadelphia. Think about it. Philadelphia, it was established as a Greek missionary city. It was established to spread the Hellenistic culture into the world as as the gateway to the East. And Jesus is co-opting that. And he's saying, yes, you are going to be a missionary city for me. That's, That's what we're seeing here. But as we think about what Jesus is doing in Philadelphia, I want you to... I I think that it's important for us to keep the bigger picture in mind also. 
This church is small, but they're faithful. They don't have the influence of some of the other churches that we've seen in these letters, yet Jesus is going to use them because they've kept his word, because they haven't denied his name, because they are faithful. Think back last week, we, we, we saw the church in Sardis. Compare the church in Philadelphia to the church in Sardis. They're very different, right? The, the, the church in Sardis had a reputation for being alive. They were, they were large. They were outwardly thriving. But Jesus said that they were dead. The church in Philadelphia, on the other hand, is apparently small. It's apparently weak. It's apparently insignificant. But Jesus says they're faithful. And so Jesus gives them the open door. He places his mission at their, the feet of this small, insignificant church. And it's like he's saying, go, get after it, get into the mission. That's, that's what we're seeing here. Make disciples. You see, Jesus uses small, faithful churches for his mission. And I believe that scales down to the individual level too. Jesus uses faithful Christians for his mission which means that you don't have to be me. You don't have to be the guy up on the stage to be used by Jesus. You don't have to be the person with the most influence. You don't have to be the strongest, most charismatic person. You just have to be faithful. If you're a person who keeps his word, he can use you too. In fact, one of the implications that we're seeing here, uh, which is supported throughout Scripture, is that Jesus rewards faithful service with greater opportunity for service. So be a faithful Christian who keeps his word, who, who claims his name, and then sit back and watch Jesus do some awesome things in your life. Be encouraged. But as the letter continues, we see a little more clearly that, that while the church is faithful, that doesn't mean that they're without turmoil. In fact, uh, what we see is that because of their faithfulness, persecution has come. But as we look to verses 9 through 11, we can see that even in persecution, we have a faithful redeemer. Jesus says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now, as we look at these promises in these three verses um, here, as we look at them, I, I hope that you can see that even as these things have been have, have been hard for the Christians in the city of brotherly love. Even though they've suffered some turmoil, they've suffered some persecution, Jesus, the faithful Savior, is showing them that in the midst of that, he's going to continue to be faithful. He's going to be right there protecting his church. It's fairly clear that in, in verse 9 that some Jews had been persecuting the church in Philadelphia, Right? And as Jesus describes them with almost the exact same language that we saw the, church, the, the Jews in Smyrna described, um, we're seeing a picture of what they were like. Jesus says that they say that they're Jews, but are not, they're lying. These persecutors claimed to be the people of God. They claimed to be God's people. And what Jesus is saying is that, no, they're not. They're just liars. They're actually worshiping Satan. They're a synagogue of Satan. They, they claim to worship God, but they don't. 
But the takeaway here is not knowing who the, the enemies of the church are. Because knowing who your enemy is in some situation, that, that's not really encouraging, is it, right? Like that doesn't help us out at all. No, the, the takeaway is that our faithful redeemer will take care of our enemies. One day these, these persecutors are going to have to acknowledge that the Christians were right. And we don't just see that here. We, we see that in Isaiah 60, 14. We, we see it in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. But even here, vindication itself isn't the takeaway either. In fact, the hope of vindication would be a dangerous hope. Why? Because the hope of vindication often turns like downright nasty. So we don't place our hope there. The, the Bible says that vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, not says Josh. Vindication is not our hope. The, the true takeaway from verse 9 for us today is the reality that, as, as, as Wearsby put it, if we take care of God's work, he will take care of our battles. We're saying that this morning. If we take care of God's work, he will take care of our battles, which means we don't have to worry about fighting battles. That's Jesus's job. Our job is to go out and do the mission. Our job is to go out and proclaim the gospel. Jesus takes care of the battles. But as we consider this promise, the, the big question that's still out there for some people is what exactly does this promise mean? Is this a promise for the near term? Or is this like an end times promise? We're dealing with revelation after all. And, and the best answer I have for you is that that's not completely clear. When Jesus uses the phrase, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, it's worth noting that scholars all quickly point out that this has very little kind of religious significance. This prostration is, is simply the traditional um, kind of Asian minor, the oriental expression of homage and honor. What we're seeing is that in some form or fashion, some way or another, these enemies will have to submit to the Christians and say, you were right. This, this could mean near term. This could mean that some of those Jews who had been persecuting the church were going to become Christians, that they were going to be the fruit of the open door that Jesus has laid before them. It could mean that the final, at the final victory of Jesus, when, when all is made right, they will submit to these Christians. It, it could mean both. Regardless, one way or another, what, what they will know without a doubt is that Jesus loves his church. These, these Jews think that God has rejected these Christians in Philadelphia, but, but the reality is that God loves them. He loves them dearly. And Jesus is saying to these Christians, your enemies will know that too. And then in verse 10, we, we see that our faithful redeemer responds to his faithful church yet again. Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This verse has a, has a whole lot in it that's been debated for years. Is this a promise that the church will be raptured before or after the great tribulation? That's a great question for another day. I'm not going to answer that question. I have my, my theory, but what I want you to see here is that there are two important realities for the church. Okay, first, 
Jesus does faithfully protect his church. And second, I want you to see why he protects his church. So the first one, when Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour, we're seeing a bold promise from Jesus. That's that's one of the things I want you to recognize here. Jesus is making a promise. And when Jesus makes a promise, he keeps his promise. Now, now listen, there, there is a lot of nuance to that word that we see translated as from here in the middle of verse 10. That, that word, it's, it's ek, it can mean from, it can mean away, it can mean independent of, it can mean free from, it can mean out of. There, there's nuance there, which is why good Christ-loving, Christ-honoring Christians can disagree on a pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib theology. And whether you fall into the camp of keep you from or keep you through what, what, on what Jesus means here, regardless, the fact is that Jesus is promising to protect his church. That's what we're seeing here. That's the first reality I want you to see. Jesus is promising to protect his church, and Jesus keeps his promises. The second reality I want you to see is the why. Why Jesus protects his church. This one's pretty plain. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. What does that mean? It it means that Jesus has spoken to the fact that when we follow him, there are going to be trials. There are going to be periods of tribulation. He's given us instructions on that. Those instructions are are pretty simple, to endure patiently. Now, there's a whole lot more that we could cover, and I don't have time to cover everything that Jesus taught about patient endurance today because we all want to eat lunch, right? So so what I'll do is I'm going to highlight just one spot from Jesus' farewell discourse. John chapters 14 through 17 is Jesus' farewell discourse. I want to encourage you this week, go home, read those three chapters. There's a lot of really good information there that'll help you understand this, but just one spot within there in John 15, starting at verse 18, Jesus said in part, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And then if we fast forward just a couple of verses to verse 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning." Patient endurance in persecution provides us opportunities for Christians to proclaim the gospel. That's that's what we need to take away. And what that means is that when attacks come, we don't counterattack. When when we are slandered, we don't slander in return. When we're called, we we when we're called names, we don't call names back. We are called to be witnesses. So we love and we serve and we count ourselves worthy to be like our master, Jesus. And when we do that, we know, know that Jesus will protect his church. Jesus will protect us. He'll keep his promise. And that's encouraging. 
when things don't seem very encouraging. But as we turn to verse 11, we see one additional promise from our faithful Redeemer. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so no one may seize your crown. Really what we're seeing here is a promise and a reminder. Jesus will return. He's he's coming soon. And when Jesus said he's coming to Ephesus and Pergamum and Sardis, it was a warning. In Ephesus, he said he would come and remove their lampstand. He was coming to shut down the church. In Pergamum, he said he would war against them with the sword of his mouth. And what he meant by that is that he was coming to cut out sin and sinners from in and amongst the church. In Sardis, he said he would come like a thief. And when we saw that last week, what we saw was, again, it was an image of Jesus coming, to, coming in to shut down a church that was already dead anyway. Those promises were warnings to those churches. But here, the promise is an encouragement. Jesus is coming, coming soon to set all things right. There's no timeline attached to that word soon. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be 10 years from now. And what that means is that we ought to have a sense of urgency about the mission that Christ has placed us here to do. It ought to be urgent to us to share the gospel when we encounter somebody who doesn't know the truth of the gospel, which is really the point of Jesus' reminder. He says, hold fast what you have. And when he says that, he he means, keep a tight grip on it. What did they have? We just saw it earlier in this letter. They had zeal and patient endurance. They, They had the gospel. They had his word. They had his name. And Jesus is telling them to continue keeping his word, keeping his name. He's telling them to cling to that so that no one may seize your crown. And, and the way that that crown is mentioned, that word is Stephanos. It, it refers to the, the, the laurel that was given to victors of the athletic games. But the way that it's mentioned is, is in a present tense kind of way. They already have earned, they've already got this crown. So don't lose it. You, 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 can, you can't lose your salvation. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about reward in heaven. And Jesus, the faithful redeemer, he doesn't want us to lose our reward that we have earned because we didn't continue the mission to the very end. Our mission is not over until we die and we see Jesus face to face or Jesus ascends on the the clouds in victory and we see him again face to face. Jesus is standing there and, and he's telling us, keep at it. I'm coming soon. Don't lose your reward. Jesus is literally encouraging us to keep ourselves engaged in the mission that he's given us. And then, as we we return to the final verses of this letter, we can see that Jesus offers an eternal reward. An eternal reward. Starting at verse 12, Jesus says, the one who conquers, and we've seen this in each of these letters, right? We remember that that the one who conquers is the one who endures, the, the one who holds fast to what you have, the one who clings to Christ in the midst of persecution, the one who conquers. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Now we all know by now in this series that verse 13 is a call for Christians to hear what Jesus is saying, to, to take it and apply it to their lives, to let it direct them, to, to let it lead them into life and into holiness. But verse 12 is the promise itself. Jesus will make the conquerors pillars in the temple of God. And, and I love the imagery that we're seeing here because this is talking about intimacy with God for his people that they're going to have with him when he when they get to heaven they will be pillars in the temple of God but here's here's like uh, this is the cool part because when we get to heaven there is no temple there's no temple in heaven Right? So, so if we read Revelation 21, 22, the apostle John tells us that I saw no temple in the city. Here's the part that's cool. For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Now back here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus is saying that we, those, those Christians who are, who are going to endure, those Christians who conquer, who remain faithful to the end, that we will be pillars in the temple, intimately connected to the temple. So the picture that we're seeing is that when we get to heaven, when we endure, when we conquer, what we're going to see is that we will be so intimately connected with God that we will be like the physical pillars in the physical temple. How, that, that is an encouraging promise. And, and then he says they'll never leave. And to the church in Philadelphia, that, that would have been a striking promise because they often found themselves fleeing out into the open into, to, to get away from the devastation that was caused by these earthquakes. And the promise here is one scholar is that, that one day, there will be the stability and the performance for the children of God that they hadn't seen before. And, and, and he'll never again know the kinds of uncertainties experienced by the Christians in Philadelphia. But the promise, the, the eternal reward, it, it, it gets better. It gets better than that. Jesus says, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. I told you that I traveled up to North Carolina this week for my job with the Navy. And, and in order to ensure that I had everything that I needed for that trip, I packed a suitcase. There's nothing special about that suitcase. It's just a blue Samsonite roller. But on the back of that suitcase, there's a tag. And on that tag, it's got my name. It's got my address. It's got my phone number. It's got my email. That tag is on my bag so that if anyone sees my bag, they know that that bag belongs to me. And Jesus is saying that the one who conquers will be made a pillar in the temple of God. The temple that doesn't exist, right? It's talking about intimacy. It's talking about closeness with God. You're going to be made a pillar in the temple of God and that he will write God's name and Jesus' new name and their address right on them. It's a way of saying, you belong here. You're mine. It's a public pronouncement that they belong right there with Christ, right there in heaven. 
And the Jews who had persecuted these Christians, had, they had expelled them from the synagogue. They'd kicked them out. And Jesus, is, and Jesus is saying to them, you know what, you guys were right to say that they don't belong there. They don't belong there. They belong here. Jesus is saying, you're here. You belong with me. You're mine. That's an incredible promise. I love that promise. This is the promise of the gospel. This is the promise that, that if you repent of your sin, if you trust in Christ for his finished work on the cross because he came and lived the life that we couldn't live, he died the death that we deserve to die. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. And on the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death. And that if we just place our faith in him, he gives us his righteousness. He writes his name on us saying, you belong here. That's the promise that we're seeing right here at the end of this letter. This letter is a letter of encouragement. And its message, I think, is pretty straightforward. We have a powerful Savior who sees his faithful church, who remains a faithful Redeemer, and who offers an eternal reward. And when we remember that, we can be encouraged. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Be encouraged.